I was super insecure. I was super scared, and I think half of my conversations with Nupur were less about <laughs> applications and more about my stressors. So I think it's really helpful to have somebody with you on the journey who kind of understands your fears and your insecurities and kind of makes you feel open and vulnerable enough to be able to share that. Because I think this process is very very daunting. Like I can give it to you in writing that my consulting process was less daunting than the B school application process. <laughs> I would recommend that there is no test that comes even close to the official marks. And just another small pointer that the final exam is going to be tougher than the official marks. So I think it's good to calibrate and inside your mind that if you've done great on official marks, don't expect the same level of difficulty. It will be more difficult because I've seen a lot of students get like tipped off because they're like, we expected this difficulty, but it was more difficult, and they get really stressed during the exam. So I think it's important to note that the final will. be a little tougher one of the mistakes i made for example is i read a lot of sample essays just don't do that in the beginning and you told me not to do that and i still did that i think it could have saved me a few iterations if i didn't do that speak to a lot of industry experts and you don't need to reach out to big shots but get a perspective of somebody who's worked at the shop floor or the ground floor and also in your company whichever is your industry talk to somebody who's a visionary like a coo or a ceo if you can because you get their perspective on these Welcome to another episode of Crack the MBA show. Our guest today is Anupama Kamath who is a first year student at Harvard Business School. Anupama completed her undergraduate degree in chemical engineering from NIT Warangal where she was awarded a gold medal and full tuition scholarship in two semesters. Anupama co-founded her college's first radio club organizing over 100 episodes. Pre-MBA Anupama worked for close to 5 years at ITC in projects, operations and marketing and a year and a half at Zomato as digital group. manager at HBS Anupama has been awarded a need based scholarship and is a member of management consulting club South Asian Business Association and Salsa club Anupama recently landed an internship with Bain in the New York office as a proud CTM alum welcome Anupama and thank you so much for joining us on the show thank you so much Nupur that was such a nice introduction it feels really good and thank you for having me here i am very excited for our discussion today likewise likewise so Anupama to begin can you tell our audience a fun fact about yourself a fun not a very happy fact would be that it's my second semester and every semester i've gotten covid so i just recovered from one and i got one just when i started school at hps as well so <laughs> i think that's the most recent fact about <laughs> oh well let's hope there's not like two more instances of covid to follow yeah let's crossed. hope all right so anupam ma'am to begin before we get into the admissions questions would love to talk a little bit more about the influences that have helped to develop you and that have shaped you right so can you share some of your winning habits that have led to all your successes in various areas including securing a need based scholarship and admission to HBS your bain internship most recently your uh, mark 
marketing job, you know, being the first in ITC's history to land that without an MBA and many more instances. Sure. At the risk of sounding cliched, but something that I find is like my true core. I think one habit would be that I genuinely am very perseverant. I do not give up. And that was also the theme of my HBSSA as well. So just to give an example, like you mentioned, right, about my marketing role, it took me some six to seven months of like multiple rejections before which I actually got that role. So I just keep going on if I want something. And I believe that I work harder than an average person. I do not believe I possess any sort of extraordinary intelligence. I'm not somebody who can crack GMAT in a month, for example. I need to put in a lot of time, a lot of effort and a lot of grunt work to get what I want, be it a quantitative exam like GMAT or a qualitative process like an application process for B schools. So yeah, I think that's second. And third would be that I kind of find my motivation. People tell me that this is something that's unachievable or that I cannot do something I think I wouldn't necessarily call it a habit but I think something that drives me is when people tell me that and for me even on the face of it I might be very disappointed and I'll be devastated I'll be crying but deep down there is this drive inside of me or this ache that okay I really need to achieve this so yeah very 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 inspiring Anupama and if we were to dig a little deeper right what do you think is at the source of those habits is it something about your upbringing or maybe some inspiration some books you used to read or anything else in your environment that you think contributed to those I think more than something very conscious you know something like a very specific thing that I read or I came across I think it was more around years and years of experiences and also upbringing like you mentioned so first would be my parents I have kind of seen them from a very young age have the value of hard work at the front and this is not even something that I've heard but I've kind of seen them emulating so like my father took responsibility of his siblings when his father died at a very very young age like at 20 and I've seen him take responsibility for them even when I was born and even when I was growing up my mother she was dropped out of school because of their financial reasons but she studied from home and she became the first graduate in her family so these are examples that they've set for me and I think the value of hard work and that value of perseverance is something that I've seen them do on a daily basis the second thing would be my own experiences to be honest like in college for example I was told that people with a grade less than nine do not get into companies like ITC which was my first firm and I really wanted ITC and I was like okay Okay, I'm really going to give this a try. So I studied for a few months. I really put in all the hard work. And I was the only person with a less than nine pointer in a group of three toppers who got the job. So I think my own experiences throughout life have shown me that if it's not written down somewhere, then it's just a myth and you actually can overcome it. So and a lot of such experiences in the life have happened that have given me the confidence today that, okay, for example, the latest myth I'd heard was that Bain in US does not hire Indian origin people. So many people have told me this. So many. And I was like, okay, you know what? Let me give this a try. I am not going to deprioritize Bain just because I've heard this rumor. And 
surprisingly after everything here we are with you know I'm joining Bain right now and even after joining Bain people congratulated me by saying hey you're the first Indian to have gotten into Bain and I'm like I don't think that's true but okay <laughs> thank you so I think like my experiences give me the motivation and confidence to say okay it's happened before it can happen again so yeah hope that helps very helpful you're quite the trendsetter as well might I add <laughs> amazing and inspiration to so many people so okay we'll move on to admissions questions as i know our audience would be very eager to hear about that so anupama to begin i understand you spoke with many mba admissions consultants right so why did you ultimately choose crack the mba that's a very good question i think when i spoke to different people i think for me it's something that i cannot put into like objective reasons but more subjectively because we had just an initial conversation i think i really like the vibe that i got but i think more importantly which is something that i also keep telling people is as a candidate you have very little confidence in the process because to you it's a bigger black box than it is to the admissions consultants and hence you are in a place where you are very clueless right and at that point of time it's very important that your consultant has the confidence in you so i think for me what was most important about ctm was that i never heard statements like you shouldn't apply to this school or you shouldn't apply to that school you know like you had the confidence in me and you said okay apply wherever you want and i think that was the most important element for me that helped me choose ctm because i needed that somebody has that confidence in me okay just go for it so i think that was like very very crucial for me very helpful and as an alarm of ctm Anupama, can you share your experience of working with CTM? My experience of working with CTM, I think the results speak for itself, but uh, <laughs> more from a subjective perspective. I think the first thing was that the whole experience was designed and built towards trying to bring out my authentic self, which is something that I did not realize while the process was happening. But in hindsight, it is very crystal clear for me. Like every time I used to reach out or ask, okay, do you think the admissions committee will like this or do you think this story will work and there was never a very strong you know imposition or a strong reaction to any of it which was i think important because otherwise i would have gotten really biased so like when i read my essays today what i feel is okay every line and every story and every anecdote in this is very very authentic and it's true to myself and i think that wouldn't have happened if my experience would have been biased by you telling me okay add this story don't add the story or you should go with this and you shouldn't go with this like you gave your opinions but in a very non imposing manner which i think really helped the second was of course like my experience was you know you focus on actions and not on outcome because i am a very outcome and like focused person which i'm working on but i think it was important to like realign myself and i think you did that really well where you realign me to saying okay can you just focus on submitting this iteration for today instead of thinking about how your end iterations will be and whether the adcom will like it or not so i think that was really really amazing yeah i think those are the two things that i genuinely genuinely have taken away from this experience because when you are in the middle of the storm it's really 
difficult and it can sometimes get very scary for the lack of a better word but and and third and most importantly i think all the candidates will be for sure there are very few people who will not be insecure throughout this process i was super insecure i was super scared and i think half of my conversations with nupur were less about <laughs> applications and more about my stressors so i think it's really helpful to have somebody with you on the journey who kind of understands your fears and your insecurities and kind of makes you feel open and vulnerable enough to be able to share that because i think this process is very very daunting like i can give it to you in writing that my consulting process was less daunting than the b school application process <laughs> emotionally speaking so yeah very helpful thanks for sharing that anupama and i guess there's some hope for people who get through right that the recruiting process would be easier for them now that they've made it absolutely like this is not even something i am saying this is a unanimous word that the career team here the career coaches that we have on schools the companies themselves say that if you crack the hps you will be able to crack this you know that's that's the kind of underlying overarching theme that everybody speaks about here like i've never heard anybody say that recruitment is tougher especially from a consulting standpoint like there are industries in which if you're making a complete switch it might be a little more unstructured but for consulting sure if you've gotten into the school i think it should be easier okay very helpful so anupama when you decided to apply right what were the actions that you took and how long did you spend on each component right be it tests essays networking and the application itself i took a sequential approach i first focused on gmat and getting it out of the way so i spent about 4 to 4 and a half months on gmat and after i was completed with that i approached admissions consultants and got on boarded with ctm and after that i tried applying for r1 but the timelines were not matching so i did for r2 so you could say about 4 months for the entire application process which includes the essays particularly and the resume so four months on that and then of course the interview prep was around a month odd i think that was pretty less okay very helpful so uh, we'll talk about each of the components individually as well now anupama so for someone who wants to score a 750 or above on the gmat like yourself how do you recommend they structure their preparation so i had a slightly unusual approach to gmat preparation so i highly recommend it not because it just worked for me but i believe in the underlying concept of that and i'll give you a bit of details about it so my unusual approach was that i spent around 80% of my time doing untimed practice and just 20% of my time doing timed practice so how i approached the overall preparation was the first two months i only did concepts from egmat they have some really good videos that kind of help you set your base very strong and after those two months i spent about a month month and a half of just doing untimed practice and by untimed practice i mean i spent 30 minutes per question where i analyzed every option every statement every word irrespective of whether my question went right or wrong because that helped me understand the tricks that gmat deploys and also my strengths and weaknesses and to see how i think so when i kind of dissected it so that's what i did in the last one month or three weeks i just did timed practice because how it helped me is when you do untimed practice for a very long period of time in your subconscious your concept becomes very strong so then when you have to solve that question in less than a minute it's not your conscious mind that helps you it's your subconscious mind that helps you and that was very strong for me so i solved fewer questions than an average person solves i only did official guide 
I did not take any other supplemental material. That was the only thing I did. And I did a lot of analysis. So I can give you some examples if you'd like about the kind of analysis that I did. But the whole process really helped me customize the process for myself and see, okay, what are the mistakes Anupama makes? Because my mistakes would be very different from another candidate's mistakes and my weaknesses would be very different. So I think this approach really, really helped me. Where towards the end, I think all my tests had a consistent 740, 760. So it gave me the confidence that, okay, what I've been doing is going in the right direction. And I did not put a time pressure on myself. Never. I think a lot of traps that students fall into is saying, oh, I need to do this within two months. I need to do this within three months. And what happens as a result of that is by the third month, they just fall short of the 750 if that's their goal. So I just kept a very wide net. I didn't put boundaries on myself. And I think that really helped. Okay. And you mentioned that you could talk about some of the analysis would love to hear your insight on that so I took a sample of like 20 wrong questions that I did and I kind of tried to find patterns in them and one of the pattern that I found was most of the answers that I marked wrong were like option D or E and what I realized is emotionally psychologically when I'm solving a question if I don't feel the first three options are right then I just automatically put D or E even though I don't have conviction in it that really helped me understand my mindset when I solve a question that if I don't have that confidence I'll just mark something so I tweaked my approach after this I was like you know even if it takes that five additional seconds can I just spend some time on the first three options to understand them and kind of get a sense of what they're saying so that I know why I'm rejecting an option or why I'm accepting an option and the second analysis I did was I tried to identify why my answers were wrong and I kind of found a theme that I misunderstood one word and that's what GMAT does when you approach 740 plus questions where it's just one word ticks you off so that was a theme and I then tweaked my approach to saying okay I'm going to read every single word and absorb it consciously before moving on to the options you know so after 7.20, it became a psychological game how do you handle your emotions and how do you handle your presence of mind when you're solving a question they sound fancy the approaches it actually was very simple that when you're reading a question are you in your head or are you outside of your head like can you just read the question and say okay I'm understanding what you're saying so that really helped me just to give an example one day before my GMAT I got a 670 because I was way inside my head and just the next day which was my final GMAT I was very conscious and I got a good score so yeah I think that helps and I don't know if my examples of analysis help but a lot of such different types of analysis which I was able to do because I spent a lot of time doing it a lot of time. I think the key is to not do more and more questions. It's to sit with your sample of questions you've already done to identify what you do right and what you do wrong. Understood. That's really helpful, Anupama. And how many tests did you take? like the full tests? Not more than 10. Okay, and what was the source of these tests? Where were you sourcing them? They were all official. They were mostly official. I think official, if I'm not mistaken, my memory is a bit rusted, I think gives you five or six official mocks. And the remaining three to four I sourced from EGMAT one, like all free tests. I didn't want to spend more money. But honestly, I would recommend that there is no test that comes even close to the official mocks. And just another 
small pointer that the final exam is going to be tougher than the official mark. So I think it's good to calibrate and inside your mind that if you've done great on official marks, don't expect the same level of difficulty. It will be more difficult because I've seen a lot of students get like tipped off because they're like, we expected this difficulty, but it was more difficult and they get really stressed during the exam. So I think it's important to note that the final will be a little tougher, but I am a huge proponent of just sticking to official stuff. So yeah. Okay, that's helpful. And in terms of spacing, how should people plan the six tests that they're allowed? I did them once a day, 10 to 15 Okay, so days. do them all at the end is what you were suggesting. I did that, yes. So the way I look at it is this concept and then there is the exam tricks. So there could be tricks in your concepts, like, you know, the tricks and tips that you have in questions. And then there is a strategy of how you manage the time and the adaptive nature of GMAT. And for that, I strongly recommend that people get into a habit of doing those tests one after the other and reiterating their timing strategies as they go on because it's very very important to note like I think the, the biggest learning for me was there was another analysis that I had done as to how many questions can you get wrong in the first 20 questions versus the last 20 questions and the trend I observed was that if I have more wrong questions in the first 20 my score will be significantly lower than if I have it in the last 20 so I used to get eight questions wrong huge difference whether that eight is in the last or the first so I think a lot of that analysis also went into deciding my timing strategy and how I would pace my exam I for example broke it into different sections like first 10 minutes next 10 minutes and the last 18 minutes or something like that and there are a lot of timing strategies available on the internet so I think that's a slightly easier part in my opinion okay that's helpful so what I'm also hearing is spend more time on the initial questions yeah a little more time because I think the way the exam works is they start with I think 700 level or a 710 level question in order to identify your baseline so if you keep solving them right it keeps giving you 720 730 740 but if you get them wrong it keeps going down to 650 and once it's gone down to 650 no matter how many good questions you solve it never goes up to 750 I think that's the system and that's how it works so and I've experienced this for myself where my first 10 questions if they're wrong no matter how great you do the exam doesn't give you a difficulty level question so generally people end up spending slightly more time in the first 10 questions compared to the last 10 and you kind of get the feeling you know your last 10 questions are very simple if you're doing well on your exam you can get a sense that your last questions will be easy like for my quant I think my last quant question was like a fifth grade question something like 10 multiplied by 2 plus 3 or something like that so <laughs> it, you kind of get that sense that okay you are in the right direction okay very helpful so uh, with that I also want to move to the essay now right so Anupama how did you approach your HBS essay let's talk about everything from your theme the stories that you talked about this is a lot more unstructured <laughs> than any of the previous questions I honestly don't think I'll be able to give a very objective point by point this 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 answer but I think it was very subjective and you just start and I know this sounds really not helpful sometimes but I think one of the mistakes I made for example is I read a lot of sample essays just don't do that in the beginning 
training and you told me not to do that and I still did that I think it could have saved me a few iterations if I didn't do that so I think my approach or recommendation to approach would be to just start like just start writing I, I want to double click on that a little bit now that you've done what you did right why do you think it's unhelpful to read the sample essays at the start I think because you fall into an unknown trap of copying believe me it happened with me I subconsciously started following the themes which was I think a lot of themes are around challenging status quo and that was true for me right like I like you just mentioned I've kind of done things that you know have been myths or you know have been told to me to not do but it wasn't authentic it it just felt like I'm copying XYZ. So I think the biggest trap is when you read that essay, you may feel like it's a good essay, but it doesn't feel like you're reading about yourself. And I think that is the biggest trap somebody could fall in. I fell in because I remember my HPS iterations were 14. I still remember. <laughs> I made 14 iterations on my HPS essay because the first few essays were very similar themes as to what I had read. And even I think the biggest reason is when your mind is blank, and you have no template, you tend to latch on to templates you have read, which is why as difficult as it may be, it's very important to just write something, even if it is the worst possible essay iteration ever, you just write something like pick a theme probably and just write about it, you know, like now I think it's 900 words you last you mentioned so yeah. it's easier honestly I it's much more difficult when you have like an open slate and you can write I think my essay was 1500 words last we both checked so I think that is something that I would recommend strongly to not do just fight the urge to read a sample essay and just write I, I think one suggestion could be like you're writing your life story I don't know how much that helps like if you absolutely want a starting point because I've heard a lot of students ask me how do I approach? How do I approach? I have no clue how to start. So maybe just think about it as writing a story about yourself and your life journey. Like even that is good enough. And I think a lot better than just reading sample essays. So I think that is really, really important. Okay. So you, the way you approached it is you first read sample essays and then you were iterating simultaneously. And then you realized along the way that this is not authentic. This is not me. So then how did you pivot your approach at that point? So there were two things I was doing. One was with respect to themes. And I think HBS essays also speak about your long-term goals and your short-term goals, right? And I think I was also experimenting with two to three different types of long-term goals. So I think the pivot came when I had a lot of material on documents. Like my first five, six iterations had almost every piece of anecdote, every value. It was like an exhaustive set of information on the word documents right and I think after the sixth iteration the pivot came and I was conscious about letting go I think that was the pivot because what's most difficult is to choose your stories and to choose your themes and it's very tempting to say I'm A, B, C and D I've done X, Y, Z and hundred other things in my life so I think for me the pivotal moment came when I said you know when this story looks great it sounds awesome it looks beautiful but it is not very close 
close to me. It's not something that gives me a lot of confidence. So I pivoted when I started picking and choosing and letting stories go, letting themes go. If I was perseverant and I was also creative, I said, I'm going to let the creative theme go because that doesn't define me as much as perseverance defines me. You know, I think that helped and then it gave some clarity. Okay, just let stuff go. Let values, just focus on what you feel most confident about, whether it is stories or themes. And once I did that, I think it never happens gradually. I think around the 12th iteration, I remember both of us were like, oh, this seems like it. Because it just came together once picked things that you were most confident about and you picked things that you felt most authentic about and you can't put that on paper. You can't explain to somebody how do you feel authentic. You just feel authentic, right? I think that really helped. So it wasn't very step-by-step approach, but I think it's very important to not be emotionally attached to like great stories, you know, something that might look great on a CV, but not necessarily in your application essay. Okay. And Anupama, what are those two or three elements that give an HBS essay its wow factor? Honestly, I don't think I'm very qualified to answer this question, even though I am at HBS, because I still believe it's a black box, right? Like you also say this, but I think one thing that really helped in my favor, maybe, is I think I was quite vulnerable in the essay. And schools really emphasize a lot on being vulnerable. But I don't think I was being vulnerable for the heck of it, or I talked about low points or struggle stories from my life just for the heck of of talking about it but because they really shape my future choices or my future actions and or my approach towards life so I think one thing that I see there is a theme is before every success anecdote there was a lot of vulnerability in terms of my feelings and my emotions and how I felt and you know whether it was insecurity or whether it was fear or whatever is the emotion so I think that really helped and second as cliched as it sounds it it feels like I'm reading about Anupama and I cannot emphasize on this enough like I've I've written it in my post HBS interview reflection as well that I don't think any piece of document describes me better than my HBS essay and I think if you can crack that like if you read that one pager or two pager and say I'm reading about myself I think that will automatically bring out your wow factor whatever it is and I think that's really really helpful like I don't believe I've written something extraordinary in my essay you know nothing about my essay is oh you know this just like oh my god it's so crazy they are success stories there are failure stories and there's like everything but I think it just speaks to me the most Uh, Anupama you just mentioned that there are success stories and before that before each success there's thought a lot of thought that goes into it and there's a lot of feelings emotions Could you maybe give one example to make it more real? Sure. So I could talk about my college RJ story. You did mention in my introduction that I founded an RJ club as well. As a child, I was bullied. And that kind of, I was was an outcast kid during my school days. And when I joined undergrad in IT Varangal, I saw that somebody had committed suicide. And it was because of the rampant hazing, ragging on the campus. And we were all a part of it until then. It really hadn't hit us. But once that happened there was something in me and the person that was bullied all throughout the years that felt the need to kind of do something so I think the thought that went into it was this my background my history and how it motivated me to do something so then I went on to find the radio club I anchored RGA sessions I convinced people to sign a petition to end ragging or at least reduce it in the campus etc so I think there was the success but I think it's important for them to know why did 
did you do this and not the 10 other things on campus that you could have done, right? So I think it's easy to write about success stories, but it's also important to see what drove you. Like even on HPS camp, there are like a thousand things I can do. But what will drive me to do something will come from a very personal space or a very emotional space. So I think that is how I chose my stories. And I think that helps. And to me, that was a very, very important story because that cause is very close to me or that space is very close to me. So I've mentioned in my essay as well that in many, many ways I could empathize with her and I could relate to her in some ways. So yeah. That's a powerful story. Thank you so much for sharing that. Anupam, I love that story. <laughs> I know you do. Know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, cool. So Anupama, moving to the application form, right? HBS's application form is more elaborate than that of many other schools. So what, what advice do you have for candidates as they approach the application form with its elements like key accomplishments, most significant challenge awards, activities? I think my first recommendation would be to only add things they can confidently talk about. Because unlike other schools, I think HBS can ask you anything and everything from any corner of your application, not just your essay. It can pick something, it can pick a word you mentioned in some corner of your application and talk to you for 15 minutes on that so just write about something that you're very very confident about that if you're asked about you can you can prepare and like speak about it <laughs> the other thing would be to just be mindful that your theme that you've talked about in your essay kind of comes throughout your application as a whole it's not very conscious but just like a hygiene check and consistency, you know, whatever you've written in one part of your application, because you just mentioned it's so elaborate, it's easy to kind of mix numbers or mix data, right? So there are 100 data points that you have to write in different places. It's important to do a thorough consistency check of what you're adding and where you are adding. I think the application also has information that they ask you about your extracurricular achievements and all of those ideas. So I think it's important important to do a thorough introspection of everything that you have done because like I mentioned you only get to write one or two things in your essays and even your resume you don't get to mention everything so it's important to do like a thorough introspection of every single thing you've done in your life so that you could choose which extracurriculars do you want to talk about which awards do you want to talk about yeah I think that's the easiest part of the process but some basic hygiene checks and some amount of effort should be good enough I, I feel okay and with the application form asking about activities and people also writing about them in the resume, right? Do you recommend that the contents be totally different or do you think there can be some overlap? I think it's important to have some overlap. The reason being you're only one person so you can't like fabricate so many different personalities or aspects to your personality and I think they know that and I think it's important if nothing else that whatever stories you mentioned in your essay do feature in your application elsewhere because you have told them that these are the most important to you right and so like my radio club for example if I don't mention that in any extracurricular activities or I don't mention that in any honors it seems like oh this is a story she's just written for qualitative effects you know so I think it's important that whatever stories you've picked as like highlights of your life do feature in some other part of the application for sure and it could even feature in your recommendation the recommendation that your recommenders write for you but that's sometimes a black box so you don't know sometimes you do so yeah I think it's okay to have overlap my my applications had overlap so okay that's helpful as well and and Anupama, you talked about goals, right? And that also being a pivot point for you in the essay. So what process did you follow 
to develop clarity on your career goals and what advice do you have for applicants to identify their true, true north i think there are two things in this one is what you want to do what you really really want to do and the other is some sort of faith or belief for the admissions committee that you will do it actually so the reader really doesn't know you right they've never interacted with you so i think it's important to not get carried away by the left part and focus on an intersection between the two and i think adcom itself says that your future choices are driven by your past actions because the only way they can get confidence in your true north is if they see that you've done something or anything to show them that you will actually go ahead into the future and do that so i think i grappled a lot with choosing something that i have never worked on so far which was in the mental health space but then i realized that when you are telling them that you want their education and to do something in your future it's important for them to know that you have shown some interest some action either professionally personally it doesn't matter that you need to do it in a professional experience but something to show them that you will do it so i think an intersection between what you want to do and whether you will do it or not and some proof of that is the most ideal space for you to identify your true north that being said i think the other important element is to do a lot of market research speak to a lot of people and identify if your true north or whatever is your goal is a genuine need in the society is it something that's already being done or is it original so i did a lot of research in that space where i kept asking people if this long term goal of mine which was digitalizing the consumer space in india if that is something that is a genuine need does the need even exist and then can it be solved like your goals can be very unrealistic or realistic so i think i spent a lot of time doing due diligence on the feasibility of my long term goal and the need for my long term goal and once that is there and the first half that i mentioned around whether you will actually do it or not i think that's like the perfect combination very helpful i was speaking with somebody last week from stanford and they mentioned that stanford does not care about the short term goal at all right so i was wondering what's your take for harvard do you think candidates need to talk about their short term goal or do you think it's sufficient to talk about the long term goal i think they ask you about your short term goal if i'm not mistaken and i think i had a question in my interview as well about my long term goal i don't remember if there was a question on my short term goal but let me say this irrespectively it's good to know and good to have it for the simple reason that it gives you more clarity for your long term goal <laughs> you know i think that's why it's important more than whether the school because i honestly don't think i'm qualified to say whether harvard loves short term goals or not but what i believe is that it will help you defend justify and explain your long term goal better that hey look i've really thought about it and i've really put in the groundwork for it i think that's why it's more important rather than because i think like you can say consulting for almost every long term goal right because consulting gives you a wide range of experience so i think it's more important to like have that clarity and it helps you explain your long term goal better if that helps yeah that does help and anupama what weaknesses in your candidacy did you successfully overcome and how i think the first weakness was that i had a 6 month work gap in my profile the second i wouldn't know if you could call it weakness or not 
not but i had a slightly higher than average work experience not slightly a little more than slightly i had around 7 years 6 to 7 years of work experience and the third thing which a lot of people keep talking about is how there is a very high percentage of iitians in hpsc like even now i see like majority of the engineers here from india are iitians i think for me the first thing that i did to overcome so called weaknesses would be to be vulnerable about some things like i told them why i had a 6 month work gap but i also told them what i did and how it changed me so it wasn't just a weakness but what did i do with that so i think that was very very important so i told them about how it changed me as a person what i did professionally in that space etc it's not important that you worked in that space i did not i was searching for my next job for example i was working on spending time with my family so i think a lot of reasons such as this gave it authenticity and that vulnerability really helped the second for the other two parts which is work experience or iit versus nit i honestly didn't focus on them i focused on my strengths i focused on irrespective of which school i went to or how many years of work experience what did i do so my application spoke about how those 7 years helped me come to my long term goal for example so in a very subtle manner it kind of spoke about the work experience without consciously telling somebody hey look i have 7 years of work experience because of this in this reason but it just showed that i was in this role and then i was started from operations came to marketing then did digital marketing and all of these experiences have brought me to finally realize that i want to do an mba and i want to do my long term goal and i think that really helped okay that's helpful anupama can you share your hbs interview experience yes let me give you an overview of how an hbs interview is like first it's a 30 minute rapid fire round <laughs> so you are asked about 25 to 30 questions in 30 minutes so you can expect the questions come at you like a rapid fire and you do not have time to think you do not ask them hey can i have a moment to think more often than not they'll say no and you have to keep your answers within 45 seconds so that is the atmosphere setting of an hps interview it's very intense it's very rapid i think it's designed this way so that you can't lie because when you're thrown questions one after the other it's very difficult for you to take a moment and cook up something and that's why i love hps interviews as well because whatever you say is like the most authentic stuff that comes out of your mouth that being said my experience was amazing the questions were not something very out of the blue basic overview questions about industry tell me about food delivery industry give me a lay of the land about that what was your experience as being the first woman in a manufacturing factory leading to 100 male workers very very emotions to understand you your emotions and your business acumen like how well do you understand your business i think that was pretty much yeah i could speak about certain things that are very important for hps interviewers if you'd like yes most certainly would like that yeah so there are three things that i have unanimously heard from alums and now that i have spoken to somebody who interviews an indian candidate as well he helped me during my recruitment <laughs> at hps Yes. So I think something that I keep hearing time and again is three things. One is like I mentioned you have to keep your answers within a minute. You have to be concise. Can you explain it to them in the least possible number of words? Second is really really how interesting are you and your 
answers. Can you explain it to somebody like they are a five-year-old? It's called ELI-5. Can you explain a concept as complicated as Bitcoin or rocket science or anything to a layman? Because the people who are interviewing you are not industry experts. They are interviewers. So it's very important. And the third, which is my personal favorite, is it's not a question and answer session. You don't give answers in bullet points. You have a conversation. And I have a very good example for it. I was asked this question about, give me a lay of the land of your food delivery industry and how has COVID impacted it? My earlier answers would be something like, so the revenue has gone up by so much. The orders have gone up like this. That's not what they want to hear. Instead, the answer that I gave was, so the one thing that has really changed after COVID is the amount of food that one person orders or a family orders has increased because they have started eating more outside and cooking less inside. And as a result of that, the total revenue has gone up. And a good example of that is my father never ate outside before. And now after COVID, he also orders. So this tells you that the revenue of the industry has increased, but in a way that's interesting and not as if you're giving a bullet answer or, you know, you're writing a presentation. I think that's most important for them. And the reason for this, just to give a background, and now in hindsight, it's clear to me, when you're sitting in a classroom and the case study method where you have to contribute all the time, there are people who are coming from finance backgrounds who have no clue about manufacturing or marketing. Can you explain it to those students in a way they understand? That's what they're seeing. Because your entire academic curriculum is based on you speaking in class, which I'll speak about more if you'd like. But yeah, I think that's what they're testing. Can you sit in a classroom? Can you be interesting? Can you explain your point in a way to people who have no clue about what you're talking and in a very conversational manner? Absolutely brilliant. Anupama, how can applicants best prepare themselves to deliver an impactful and interesting response within under a minute? Can you share that a little bit? I think one thing they could do is practice their answers with friends as if they are actually explaining this to a friend, right? And we all do that on our daily basis. Like if I meet somebody who asks me about my industry, I will explain it to that person so the interesting or layman part of that is this keeping it within a minute takes practice because I am not somebody who can give concise answers. I talk a lot and I think it's important to write down the content, look at the content and see what's redundant, what's being repeated, whether it is important, does it deserve to be in your answer and again if not cut the emotional attachment to your content and leave it. I think that's the grunt work part of it where the answer comes out interesting but there is grunt work that goes into it. So I had excels where for different types of questions I had whole answers written down and then I was cutting it short into bits and pieces as much as I can but at the same time just put down certain points in your excel so that you don't sound rehearsed they do not like it because in a classroom you cannot rehearse your answers right you have to give answers on the spot so it's very important for them that you come across as a conversational person and not a rehearsed person which is why I just put some bullet points and yeah, and also get into the habit of giving more and more answers because then your brain tells you that you've exceeded a minute if you've gotten into the habit. So I think these three things, like put down your content, do the grunt work of cutting it, explain it to your friends, and also just keep practicing so that you have a natural alarm clock in your head that goes off when you've exceeded a minute. I think that helps. Yeah, that's amazing. And Anupama, there's a perception that the HBS interview is a stress interview and they're like people are going to get caught off guard. 
So what's your take on that? Okay, two parts. About the stress, I didn't find the interview stressful. I'll be very honest. Second, yes, sometimes you can be caught off guard. I will agree to that part. Off guard in the literal sense that you didn't expect a question and you got asked a question. What could be an example of, you know, something like that? Maybe like from your own experience or what you've heard from friends. I think I could borrow an example from my Bain interview for HPS, but I can also give an example that a friend experienced. In my Bain interview, everything was going great. And then this person out of the blue asks, what triggered your interest in behavioral psychology? He didn't ask me what I do or because I've mentioned that point in my resume. And I was like this. It's like, oh, okay. I didn't expect this question. <laughs> but then I gave an answer. So I think, yeah, it was an authentic answer, but it was an unrehearsed answer. I think a friend of mine was asked about some hobby of his and how that has changed his perspective towards capitalism. Things like that. That was a little tricky. And I think the, the space was about non-profits and stuff like that. So it wasn't something that he could not answer, but I think it was catching somebody off guard. The other question I was asked in my HPS interview, which was completely off guard, is has there been any woman employee in your factory, specifically one employee that you have helped? And I was like, as a leader, I've helped people in a group, but just one person. So I had to rack my brain because this was a very, very unconventional question. I did not expect it to be in my HPS interview. So these are some examples. And I think if you have done something, your brain will throw it out. Just be assured of it like my brain did. Stress, I think HPS focuses a lot on preparing. So you can actually prepare. Like I was very well prepared for my HPS interview. So I think it's stressful because it feels like you've given a one and a half hour interview. But it's not stressful the way Indians call stress interview where somebody is being rude or you know has a very serious face like my interviewer was very sweet she was smiling throughout she made me feel comfortable and I even wrote to her saying that a big part of my success is in interview is because you started the interview in a very nice way because you could have been very serious and I could have gotten thrown off so it's not stress in that sense so I think it's not stressful you just need to prepare a lot if you don't then it can get stressful. Yeah. And apart from the things you mentioned, Anupama, what other kind of preparation do you recommend for the interview? I think whichever are your industries that you have worked upon, having a very overview of that industry is very, very important because they will know everything about your industry. Just to give an example, I worked at Zomato just before HPS and she asked me, so Swiggy's stock price has been going up but Zomato's isn't. What do you think is the reason? And I was like, how does this woman, and she gave me a piece of news from 15 days ago and I was shocked so know your industry know your business know the macro space very very well because again now I can connect to it we have a course on economics and politics and now I know why we asked that question but it's very important to know that so that's one preparation tip the second would be to really have it in your mind that you're interacting with a peer or an equal and not somebody who's very very senior because your stress shows on your face so I don't know if it's going to go back to in-person interviews this year but even in virtual it kind of shows yeah I think that's the second and the third is I think also something I did speak to a lot of industry experts and you don't need to reach out to big shots but get a perspective of somebody who's worked at the shop floor or the ground floor and also in your company whichever is your industry talk to somebody who's a visionary like a COO or a CEO if you can because you get their perspective on these industries 
countries. And I think that's what helped me a lot because I could understand from their angle, why did they launch a product for ITC? Where is ITC going to go in the next 10 years? Slight vision of that is very helpful. So I think students should do that as well if time permits. I think it's very, very, very helpful to just get senior perspectives. Okay. That's really cool. Thanks for sharing that, Anupama. And Anupama, I'm going to sneak in one question about the Wharton team-based discussion as well, since you got into Wharton. How did you prepare for Wharton's TBD? And how do you recommend applicants approach that? I don't know if candidates should follow my approach because I did a lot of mocks. I think I did around eight mocks, eight or nine from a purely practice perspective. But other than that, I think the Wharton DVD already gives you a topic. Yeah, I just did a lot of mocks. I did it with different admissions consultants. So I did it with three, four different ones to see the kind of feedback that I was getting. I also did it with people from other countries which I think you can sign up on GMAT club because on the day you're going to get people from different countries and I'm bad at understanding different accents I still struggle with it in class so I think it's important for you to get over that and practice with people from different spaces as for the real content I think basic stuff be nice don't cut people and it's really quality over quantity there are times in my mocks I've spoken once or twice and everyone else has been constantly speaking and it has still helped me and this is something that I have derived from a lot of group discussions that I've done throughout my life so I think it's important to like keep that in mind but more importantly be concise be crystal clear and I think something that really helps is if you are able to drive the discussion for a group or pivot the discussion in a different way or just do that I think that's like the highest level of contribution you can do to a group no pressure but yeah I think that's what helped me and I think one other very key piece of advice I could give is enter the TBD with very little bias of your previous mocks which is why I wouldn't recommend doing 8 mocks what happened with me is all my 8 mocks everybody in my mock were very sweet very nice very congenial collaborative and on the day of my TBD the people were very aggressive they were like we should do this let's move on didn't ask anybody should we do this or not what do you guys think and I was taken off guard because my experience of TBDs had been oh people are really nice people are collaborative but that didn't work out and I think I was thrown off a little bit so just expect all different types of people you could have a tbd group that is very 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 congenial you could have a tbd group that's not you just need to focus on what you need to do right and your content i think that's important okay thank you anupama and moving to the hbs questions anupama what for you is Harvard Business School's unique identity? Like as a student now? Oh yeah, now. Like, as a student now, yeah. I think it's hands down, undoubtedly it's case method. Like I cannot, it's the most unique thing. It's the only school that does it. And I absolutely, absolutely am in awe of it. I, it's been an entire semester down. I think when, when HBS itself talks about its case method and says that this is our core, they really mean it. It is their core. <laughs> I can elaborate a few more. Yeah, would but... you like to hear a little bit more? about the case method so just setting context first you're given a case many many days before it's on a real life real business problem that has happened a few years ago or it could be just a couple of years ago it's like a story that you're reading so there is a lot of information that you get on let's say there was a recent case on pepsi versus coke 
let me pick a simple example and it was a strategy case the case talked about what pepsi did to get better than coke what coke did and the wars that they had and how did they speak with retailers and etc and then the case ends with question if you are the ceo of coke what will you do so it's more often than not a case ends with a question such as that where you are the protagonist you prepare the case you read the case you prepare your answers you prepare your defenses when you go to the class you get cold called a thousand students at hps are divided into 10 to 12 sections of 90 students each and the professor comes to the class and can just randomly pick somebody which is called a cold call and say okay anupama what do you think if you are the ceo what would you do out of the blue and i have to give an answer on the spot so i think that's the beauty of it and you cannot be diplomatic because if you are the business leader you cannot be diplomatic so let's say you say it depends and it is this and the professor will put you on the spot and say no i need a yes or no from you i need an answer from you so this and then the debate and the conversation starts where it's a 1 hour 20 minutes class and the professor speaks for a cumulative of 15 minutes maybe and the rest of the time it's students who are answering questions that the professor has asked or responding to other people's comments let's say somebody says hey i think pepsi did a great job i could actually say i disagree with you i don't think pepsi did a great job for so and so reasons this is what i think so it's actually a beautifully orchestrated conversation that's going on it's super fun there are times i don't even realize when the one hour 20 minutes flew off <laughs> and i think it's my absolutely one of the favorite parts about the school and that's what makes it worth it that even though it so intense academically you learn communication you learn how to convince somebody you learn skills which are actually being decisive you have to take a stance you cannot say because there is limited information in the case you don't have all the information we recently had a case on insider trading on rajat gupta as to whether the information that he disclosed was right or wrong and it was a debate it was a proper debate it wasn't a theory class where the professor was saying he did wrong for so and so reasons it was an amazing debate everybody was taking stances so i think that really helps develop multiple aspects of your personality and the second is it exposes you to different industries which i think i wouldn't have read it if it was a theory class honestly so it's like a story reading when i read cases and every class is a case even a finance course is a case so you read you discuss and you solve for it so yeah i think that helps i can go on and on and on about it very but. very exciting pedagogy um and how many cases do you do in a week two to three per day into five so around 10 to 15 cases okay that's quite a lot and you're studying for all of them on the weekend or how do you manage that i do it the day before but this weekend i'm planning to like get a head start because there are finance courses and i'm not very good at that but yeah i think it's very intense needless to say let me give that disclaimer it's very intense but very very rewarding so you do the prep and then you do the classes attendance is very very important at hps they really take it very important i don't think i've missed more than seven classes last semester including all my courses and that itself is a big number so it's very important for everybody to be on the class and the simple reason is that the class becomes enriching because of the students discussing right and bringing in their viewpoints so they take it very very seriously attendance is very important and it's amazing that way so yeah and there are people who prepare on the weekends there are different models of preparation so yeah okay awesome and anubama what is it like to be an international student in the us right like was this the first time you went to the us when you yes. visited so 
what was it like for you did you integrate easily did you initially feel like an outsider if you could just briefly share that experience two things one is if you are among locals it can feel like an outsider sometimes and this is a place where people are very nice very polite but i think for me it was more of a cultural shock because in india if i'm talking to you for example nupur if you say something there's a good chance i know what you mean and what you said right like why you said it here it was very difficult like it's difficult to read people it's difficult to understand why they are saying what they are saying and hence it took me a few months to get that right it does feel like an outsider because everything is different it's minus 20 degrees celsius outside right now <laughs> it the temperature is different the people are different the culture is different and by culture i mean even something as simple as food right so it's very different and if you're coming from india the life of convenience that you have you can dunzo or swiggy or like have somebody clean your room is different but you get used to it like i can promise and i can assure that if somebody like me has been able to get used to it <laughs> i think people would be fine but i think the most difficult part is juggling the big three aspects which is academic recruitment and social because everything happens at the same time that's how it's designed recruitment happens in the first semester for consulting and for others it happens in the second semester so i think consulting and investment banking happen in the first sem so it's very very hectic so you really need to learn and juggle between the three because your acads are intense socially there are is a lot of stuff going on at any given point of time there are at least six parties happening there are five different gatherings happening there are events happening so i think it was very very important to do that and i think that's a genuine struggle and the school itself says that to you it speaks about fomo it speaks about openly speaks about your academic pressures and everything so yeah i think juggling that and finding the sweet spot for yourself and what you want is the most important piece and everybody struggles with it at the beginning like i've seen even the most confident most secure people struggle with it so okay cool and uh, anupama how do students engage out outside the classroom outside the classroom but before we move on i would just also like to point out something that the indian community here is pretty big we are like 60 of us so it's a lot better than other countries where there are only two or three people like you know we have one person from bangladesh this year's so two people from sri lanka i think indian community is so big you can feel like an insider and an outsider at the same time i just forgot mentioning that point so yeah it's amazing Super. yeah moving sorry yeah moving to how students engage outside the classroom i know that there's a lot of flagship events as well like the gatsby party etc so if you could just shed some light on that so in the first semester there are a lot of clubs that organize parties so there was a gatsby themed party uh, there is 80s themed party so there are different themes that happen almost every other weekend on a thursday or a friday so that's that's one aspect the second is the sports culture here there are a lot of games that happen the harvard yale game there are people from yale who fly down drive down to actually watch the game there are a lot of games that keep happening around in stadiums etc so that's that's another thing outside of class there are a lot of small events small dinners and small section events that happen like i mentioned the section culture is very very strong because you sit with that section for the entire year and you they are your discussion space right so there's a lot of emphasis that the school puts on bonding with your section so that's one and the big thing is trips whenever there's a long weekend 
people do take trips there's section trip that happens every semester last time we went to maine people go to puerto rico mexico bahamas people have gone skiing this weekend i'm recovering from covid else i would be there right now so i think trips is a big big part of a b school culture where if you have three days and i think i love that culture about us the one thing that i want to imbibe is people genuinely believe in equal parts of enjoying and equal parts of preparation so i would love to emphasize the fact that even if there is an interview tomorrow or an exam tomorrow students will put in the required amount of work and have the self awareness that this is the max they can do and then they'll go enjoy they'll party they'll relax and i think i love that and i'm still trying to imbibe that but that's pretty much how it happens here so hope that paints a picture for you yeah it really does and anupama something else about academics that i would love to hear from you who are the star professors and what are the most popular electives i think the first semester the most popular was for me uh, leadership so i think the professors are different for different sections our professor was the managing director of mckinsey for 35 years he worked there and he came to teach us leadership absolutely loved him he used to conduct role plays where you know he would make somebody the ceo he would make somebody the lowest factory worker and then have them converse you know and like put you on the spot always keeps you on your feet you cannot be diplomatic it's the most fun i've had in his class and he brings his experience so most of the professors are not just academics they come from the business world like we had a new course last semester which i loved it was on inclusion diversity equity and inclusion and our professor was a nigerian billionaire who's who sits on the board of like the biggest banks in nigeria but he was also the first black nigerian who attended hbs 20 years ago so this person taught us inclusion and i loved how it opened up my eyes about the way racism works and you know how to identify ceos who do stuff just for the sake of showing off versus you know genuinely do something and hearing that from people who are blacks here who have experienced stuff was very very eye opening so i think these are my favorite professors this semester what are their names my inclusion professor's name is hakim belosagi and my leadership professor's name is david fabini and this semester the most famous course that i've heard from people two courses is bigi it's called business and government and international economy very difficult a course but it speaks about it picks one country speaks about its entire history and its current economy so there's the case on india as well maybe sometime in the next few weeks there's we recently read about the great depression and the professor was actually teaching us how economy works and someone who doesn't come from an economics background it was amazing she her name is rishman she does a lot of work in public health and economy and governments etc so it's the most famous course for this semester for sure i'm very excited about it okay cool super cool shifting gears to recruiting now anupama can you share yes. how consulting <laughs> can how consulting recruiting works at hbs yeah so consulting is as an industry works different in us as a whole compared to india just giving that context first a you don't apply to the firm only you apply to an office so let's say there are 15 offices in us you pick an office you don't pick like just the firm so that's one second it's very networking heavy 
right? Because you're picking an office, you start very early on. So the process for us started in October end itself. And my interviews were in January 10. So you can see that it's a two to three month process where you actually network. There's a concept called coffee chats. So you network with offices, you meet people from offices, you tell them why you're interested in consulting, you ask good questions. And all of this is evaluative. This is not informal. So they are evaluating you on a constant basis as to whether you will be a good fit for them, whether you're genuinely interested in consulting or not. So I think this is the biggest difference between consulting in any other part of the world for that matter versus US, not just India. So you network a lot, you build relationships in order to get, not in order to, but as a part that contributes to getting an interview invite. So that's the process and it starts in October end and it goes till December 1st week when you submit your applications. After that, in a week or so, you get interview invites and then you keep preparing for the actual interview. And how HBS is slightly different from other schools is all the other schools start in September itself or October. But HBS has blackout period. It has a concept of a blackout period where it doesn't allow companies to interact with students until October. And because we are so academically intense, like I just mentioned, that's why no company official can speak to any student until October end. Like once it starts, it's then a floodgate. But until then, we're kind of protected. <laughs> so that's how HBS consulting recruiting works with that slight difference. Yeah, can dig deeper into any aspect. Right. Yeah, maybe a few things. One thing I'm wondering is what consulting employers sponsor visas for international students? Except Deloitte, everybody does. And by everybody, I mean the MBBs, which is McKinsey, BCG and Bain. Then there's uh, Kearney, Strategy Ant, EY Parthenon and LEK Group. I think all of these. Two. Okay, helpful. And do you also recruit for specific practices? If you have any preferences, how do you indicate that, for example, social impact, digital transformation, etc.? So every firm has their specific practices and that differs. Largely, there's a lot of overlap. So for example, except Bain, and I think one or two of the non-MBB firms, I don't know for sure. Everybody has practices like McKinsey has a digital practice. It has an operations practice. Firms these days love if you apply to practices. Right? Because they can pitch to their clients saying, hey, we have this special expertise person on our team. So it's a plus. And now firms are moving more and more towards choosing practices like McKinsey outright tells you to try and apply for a practice instead of a generalist model. A generalist model is where you get projects from any industry, any expertise. And in a practice, you work for 50 to 60% on that practice. And the remaining 30% of the time, you can choose other projects. Bain has a 100% generalist model for the first two years where they don't have practices. And they do this because they really want you to explore different industries so that you can come and find your passion on your own. Because they believe it's important to hone a more holistic skill set before you get narrowed down. But to answer your original question, question yes there's a lot of opportunities to like pick practices okay and how is the career and professional development structured and how can students leverage the resources to make the most of their recruiting opportunities at HBS I think it's amazing here in the sense that like I just mentioned the people who sit here for resume reviews for help with choosing an office for an international student it's very difficult right in India I can say Bangalore in a heartbeat but in US I don't know what to say which office do I choose and the beauty is that the people who actually sit 
on these panels who help you one to one are people who interview students for HBS like that they're the same team I was helped by Kurt who is one of the two people who interview Indian candidates the other guy who I forgot his name who reviewed my resume for consulting uh, he sat across the table from me and was helping me with words is the guy who interviewed a friend of mine this year for HBS so I think it's amazing that the quality of resources is that high and it's beautiful because they also hold sessions one-on-one as many as you want to even talk about your emotional fears like I have scheduled so many sessions with people on saying I have no clue how to choose an office can you please help me what do you think I should ask in these coffee chats I have no clue and people genuinely help you you can be very transparent and vulnerable because once you're part of the school you're part of the family and they really treat you that way they do so I think the CPD that we call career and professional development their resources are amazing you can choose people based basis industry experience, basis their expertise. There are specific people who have expertise in helping people switch careers from anything non-consulting to consulting. So you can choose them as well. So you have profiles visible and you can schedule as many sessions as you want with them. So it's absolutely amazing. Then there is the consulting club, which has people who can give you mock cases. So I have only done mock cases with them. So they are very helpful. They give you feedback and they are incentivized. They are paid certain amount of money by CPD in order to help us. So that's amazing. And they are second years, the people who give us cases. So I think these two aspects are amazing. And then there are sessions that keep happening, give like info sessions. They are okay, but I think uh, they're important for people who've never known about consulting or like never thought of consulting. So they are, they are helpful too. So yeah, these are the two or three things that the CPT does. Okay. Super helpful. And Anupama, I understand you're the first person on campus to be offered a role by Bain this year. So what helped you succeed in the recruiting process? First person who got the call. (laughs) Okay. Okay. As told by the company. But yeah, honestly, I started off earlier than a lot of people I know on the campus. Let me put it this way. That's one. So I practiced more, I think. Started when? I started my interview practice by mid-November. And this is with the consulting club, like, meeting with yes, second with years the, that's out with the second years with the okay. ECs we, we call them ECs here so yeah with the ECs I practiced from mid-November itself and I think more than that what helped me is to do a lot of analysis and I think it's just something it's an approach that I do but I did analyze a lot and as to where I was going wrong and I think for consulting in fact they themselves tell you that you have to analyze a lot but the other thing that I did early on is I started practicing with Indian ex-consultants but just a point of to note is that Indian consulting is very different from US consulting. Consulting cases in India are very analysis driven. Understand the problem. Why is profit dipping? Go down, go deeper. In US, it's more solution based. Just, okay, profit is dipping. You will very early on find out why. What can you do? How can you improve profits? That's the difference. And I think I identified that early on and I kind of switched gears to doing it only with American ECs. So that really helped. Analysis of cases really helped. And also networking, I cannot emphasize on this enough. Bain specifically loves people who build bonds and network a lot. So I think it's very important for them to have those relationships. Like just as an example, people in the office, when I submitted my application, I wrote to them saying, okay, I submitted 
the application to the New York office. I hope I get an interview invite. And somebody just wrote back to me, okay, just message me once you get it. We can practice a case together. And I was like, did you know? <laughs> did you know I was going to get an invite? So it's very important for them to have those relationships because I think the way decision happens is they just ask around. Okay, who did you talk to? How did you find them? Were they amiable? Were they presentable? Like, So I think that plays a big role in US consulting, the kind of networks you build. Not so important for McKinsey, very important for BCG and Bay. So yeah. Okay, very helpful. And is there anything aspiring consultants in India can do to better prepare themselves even early on? Yes. So each of these firms have a pre-MBA summer program that they open for schools. It's if you as a candidate are very sure about consulting or at least 70 to 80% sure about consulting, it's a very good idea to network with people. But the caveat on that is you're more often than not, not sure about offices. So the biggest challenge in US consulting is, let's say you need to speak to about three to four people from each office to like build a bond. If you have three offices in pipeline, you need to speak to 12 people, right? And that's very daunting with CADs and everything. So what I would recommend is people do this over the break because they have time, right? So before joining school, if you have time, speak to different people from the offices, get a sense of, you know, how to do all of this. But the other cons of that is if you're putting yourself in front of company people, you also need to know the way of talking or the kind of questions you can ask. So that's something that kind of gets missed. But then they are also not very stringent on, like they're not being very scrutinizing before the school starts. I think it's a good idea to start talking to people. More than the company people, I would recommend talking to people to just understand which office they would like to work at. They can talk to people from the campus like us. They can talk to people who they know who are in consulting firms because I think that's the biggest biggest pain point and you will hear everybody say that for an international student with no family or ties in the US it gets very difficult to pick an office because the other thing that makes it complicated is that the bigger offices are also the most competitive offices like McKinsey literally wrote out to people this year saying please try to apply to offices other than New York and San Francisco because it's so competitive we have very few positions so it becomes a game between letting go of a competitive office choosing an office office in a city you want to live in so New York was a risky move but I had really bonded well with people from the New York office so I went ahead and applied to the NYC office so worked like a charm <laughs> yeah <laughs> super super and Anupama, as we bring the show to a close do you have any final advice for prospective applicants or incoming MBA students who are looking to pursue an MBA in the US? Yeah, I think it's going to be roller coaster rides. It's just, I think, very important to be authentic. Cannot emphasize whether it is your application or even on campus. Just be yourself. Don't get carried away by sample essays or what people on campus are going to be doing or the number of parties that happen. It's fine. I think the most important thing is to keep bringing yourself back to what you really want to do and what you really feel like doing. Yeah, I think that's that. And for applications, more importantly, Importantly, just feel very confident about what you're putting into the essay. And yeah, I think CTM will do the rest. <laughs> Amazing. So, not concerned yeah. about. Superb, superb. Thank you. Thank you so much, Anupama. I know I stole some extra time from you and you no, were that's fine. very, very <laughs> gracious about it. Really appreciate the depth with which you've shared so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. I absolutely enjoyed discussing and I hope it helps people. Yeah. And uh, let me know if anyone's coming to HPS. I would love to 
Off to them. Superb, superb. Thank you.